You know, I'm reading a book and I'm your reader, your, your listeners won't know this. I, I read science fiction books, mostly about dragons and things of that nature. Cause I live in a world that's really real and I need a fantasy world. Right. But the book I'm reading right now is called upstream. It, the, the full title is upstream, the quest to solve problems before they happen. It's written by a guy named Dan Heath. Right. And I should say I'm reading it actually. My, my Alexa is telling it to me, right? So I'm, I'm in storyland. But it, it, it talks about the world that I want to live in. And, and it talks about approaching it from a standpoint of going upstream. And not upstream as a destination, but upstream as a destination. So that we're always going upstream. I'd like to welcome everybody to another edition of Resilience Conversations. Resilience Conversations is a way that we share uh, worlds with people out in the field doing the work. I am Rebecca Lewis Pankratz. I am a member of the ESDAC Resilience Team, and I have with me. Hi, I'm Ginger Lumen, and I'm just, uh, yeah, kind of here for the ride. I am so excited to be hearing from Dave Ellis today. Dave Ellis is in the land of New Jersey, and he is working in the Department of Children and Families world, but not on or of. And so, Dave, I got to see you on a CTIP call, and I listened to you, and I thought, holy moly, here's somebody that is doing the work and we need to have you be a part of our listeners' world. And so, Dave, we want to welcome you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. So give us just a synopsis, Dave, of what does it mean to be an executive on loan in the world of children and families, but not of that world? Mm, it's a really good question. So let me go at it the way that I always go with things, right? So I look at things through a very personal lens. I am the father of five adult children. I have 19 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. My wife and I are former foster parents. I retired from the Minnesota Department of Corrections after about 25 years. And, you know, for some reason, you, when people hear the word retire, they kind of think that you just go somewhere and sit down. Um, My parents blessed me or cursed me, whichever way you want to look at it. With with a work ethic that says you work till you die, you, you find. My, one of my mentors told me he said, Dave, when you find a blending of role and soul, you found vocation, and you'll never work another day in your life. And that's probably the the best guidance that I've ever had. Some of the people out there would know who that is. His name is Parker J. Palmer. He founded the Center for Courage and Renewal. And, and I've had the pleasure of be engaging with him and seeking wisdom. But but from an EOL, an executive on loan, it's a, an interesting position that is one of a kind in the country. Actually, it's probably not one of a kind anymore. It was when I got hired. I was hired uh, as a consultant to come to the state of New Jersey to create a statewide action plan to address adverse childhood experiences. And, and to imp- help implement that plan, it's 
a little bit different because I am not a state employee. I am a consultant. And so while I sit as a part of the commissioner's executive team and everything that my office does, uh, and I do have five staff that I work with, uh, everything that my office does is connected to every state agency, right? And so we're charged with creating a plan and then helping all of the state agencies figure out how to actually implement it across their spheres. I am funded through three foundations, so I'm not funded by state dollars. And I am on a contract. So at the end of the contract, I will, one of two things will happen. Either they'll, or I suppose there's more than a two. They could renew it. Uh, they could say, go away, we're done. Uh, they could say, we want to transition. And so we want, we're going to hire a full-time staff executive director, and I would help them transition. But my commitment was to be here for the full term of the contract. I have full autonomy uh, in that um, this entire operation is overseen by what's referred to the ACE Collaborative in New Jersey. It is made up of those three foundations, uh, the Nicholson Foundation, the Burke Foundation, and the Terrell Fund, and the Department of Children and Families. In addition, this office, the Office of Resilience, is the fifth member of that collaborative. So I am on. I, I am uh, at an equal par with all of the other four, even though I'm a consultant in it. And it does mean, you know, that I, I'm part of the commissioner's executive team, but I can't, you know, I can't handle state dollars. I can't, can't sign off on vacation requests and those kinds of things. And so we had to set up processes for all of those things to happen. Wow. And so, Dave, you know, I was just sitting here thinking like, oh, my gosh, we need that in Kansas. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when you think about being called in as an expert to do to cast a vision and also create implementation and processes like that's a huge charge. And um, I'm just really curious, Dave, when you kind of think about the ACEs world the science of resilience, those kind of things. Oftentimes people describe this kind of lightning bolt moment where you found the science and something happens to you. Did you experience that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So a little story. I've done a lot of things in my life. One of them, before I came to New Jersey, right after I retired from the Department of Corrections, uh, one day my wife looked at me and she said, you've got to go back to work. Uh, I said, why? She said, because you're just laying here. You're not doing anything and you're driving yourself nuts and me nuts with you. So I went to work for Greater Twin Cities United Way in Minneapolis. And so I had an opportunity to attend uh, an IVAT conference uh, in California around trauma and abuse. Right. And I'm the person that when I go, I don't go to conferences to listen to sessions. I'm pretty good at looking at PowerPoints and knowing what people are talking about. I went to build relationships with people that I had no idea who they were and to broaden my network. One day, I didn't have anyone to talk to, and I ended up in a session. I don't know how I got there. I don't even know the name of it. I walked in. There was this white guy at the front of the stage. He had on this light brown suit. He was dressed to the nines. I mean, his hair was in perfect condition and he was talking and I was busy looking around for who's my next victim I'm going to, excuse me, who that I'm going to talk to. And all of a sudden, I don't know what he said. I have no idea. 
but it went in and it didn't move. And I, my head snapped to the front and I'm looking at this guy. And all of a sudden I start listening and he is talking about this research that he had been part of and this thing called trauma and adversity and adverse childhood experiences. And he's going through these numbers. And I thought he was describing my life. I thought he had put Dave Ellis, this, this is Dave Ellis somewhere on a slide and he was going down that slide. And I said, that's what this is. You know, I've tried for years to tell people what I felt in my head, in my heart, what was happening. And they kept telling me that can't be true. Th those things don't happen to people. And after you hear that enough, you begin to believe it. You begin to think you're a little crazy. Mm. And I, I really did. I thought I was nuts. That was the day I realized I wasn't crazy. That was the day that I realized that there was something scientific, that the problem I was having was that I didn't have the right language. I kept trying to tell them in Dave Ellis. Mm -hmm. And as you might be able to tell, I'm an excitable guy. And, and you figure I'm over six feet tall. I'm over 350 pounds. And I'm very animated when I talk. And so I scare people, right? And so they always think that I'm angry. And I keep trying to tell them I'm not angry. I need you to hear me. And so. That was the day that I realized that there was a language I could use that people couldn't deny anymore. And it did something. It felt like I became whole again. It felt like a piece of me that I hadn't had. Now, you're talking to somebody who has finally realized the level of mental health issues that they have. I've tried to commit suicide. I've done all these strange things that people would go, really? And I'm going, yeah, all this stuff happened in my life. All that to say, your trauma is not your destiny. Okay, just because you had this stuff, and that's just it. It's stuff that happened to you. It's not, it's not a diagnosis. It's not that you have a disease. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to be fixed. You are exactly where you should be based on the experiences of your life. It took me, I don't know. A long time to learn that. But after this guy got done talking, I had to go up and meet him. He said his name was Vince Folletti. Mm -hmm. And I found out, you know, this guy is one of the co-principal investigators. And, and I'm listening to him. But, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I don't understand all this stuff. And I tell him, I says, I, can you send me some information on this research? He says, give me your email. Okay. Well, I didn't realize what Vince was going to do. He sent me more data than I knew what to mm -hmm, do with. Mm -hmm. and information and presentations he had done. And I started reading and I go, oh, my God, if, if this had the impact on me, had that impact on me, what would it do for people in the community? Right. It, because the one thing that I know is that anything that we learn that's new through research, we train professionals on. Right. We never train the people who are most the directly families. impacted. That's we right. never give them the same institution information. They're expected to accept people parachuting into their lives to save them. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, that model hasn't worked for how long we've been using that. Amen. Since we crawled up out of whatever pool or whatever it was, however we got here, we've been doing that. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that in order for something new to come, you have to let go of something old. And that's really hard because the old things have been with us for a long time. You know, and, and so it, it's being able to see that difference. Vince introduced me to Rob Anda, 
we, we, Rob and I, and a woman that most people know, Laura Porter, Laura we work Porter. together a lot. Wow. I just remember back to the original creation of the, what's referred to as the ACE interface mm-hmm. curriculum and, and, and being one of the original master trainers in that process. I was one of the first 25 people ever trained in that curriculum. And I've had my hands in it ever since. I don't know how not to. Dave, that is, I was just sitting here kind of experiencing this part of your story and realizing, yes, this is, you know, when I, when I heard you that day, I, I knew that you understood the transfer that had to happen on the ground for the folks that are experiencing the issues that we're trying to solve. And, you know, I too, Dave, Ginger, I don't know about you, but I know when I first found the ACE study, I, I thought, oh, now I can stop explaining. <laughs> I can say, I have eight ACEs, my mom has nine, and we can move on from, okay, things were hard and there's validity to the struggle, right? And there's science behind this and I'm not the only one. And Ginger, what was coming up for you? Well, not only validity for the struggle, but then also what has been the result physically, socially, uh, mentally. And that's the part that made me say, oh, I'm not completely crazy here, or that I started looking at people who were struggling in different sorts of ways too. And, and then I really felt a connection with people in a way that I had tried to separate myself from those people um, because I, 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 wasn't, I was fighting my own fight. And um, yeah, and there's a connection there that had been pushed away for so long. Okay. Let's see, you guys have discovered part of, I think, the secret, right? I I just remember I do a lot of training and it's in those trainings when I have people come up to me and go, you know what? I've heard this five or six times, but this is the first time I don't feel like I'm crazy. That's when I know that things are happening. Right. And, and that is for me, that's the beginning of doing our own work, mm-hmm. which most of us don't want to do. And I understand why it's hard, first of all. But trauma is not a pleasant feeling. It's, it's something, I, I think it was Gabor Mehta who said, we're nothing more than our childhood trauma wrapped up in adult bodies. And at any given point in time, you can come along and get a little pin prick, and all of a sudden I'm four years old again, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm eight, or whatever that tragic, traumatic event was. But it's about doing our own work and recognizing it's not them. it's us okay it's It's me that's how prevalent all of this work and all this stuff really is and what an incredible honor it is to have experienced the things that we have and then be in this sacred position of being able to lead others to safety of exploring right and i'm not sure if it's vanderkolk that talks about you know that stuff's already happened to us it isn't the stories around our trauma that terrify us it's the feelings attached to them that we haven't ever translated and so helping people safely kind of discharge those pieces oh my goodness so when you think about dave child welfare Mm. it is a heavy topic I know for me, as a mom that transitioned out of addiction and poverty and trauma, you know, just the mention of child welfare activates me still. And I've been out for multiple years now and we have safety and all of those things. And so how has the work of trauma and resilience brought hope to you 
personally in the topic of child welfare and more importantly to those that are served in child welfare? Well, you know, my wife and I, after being foster parents for so many years, I think it's somewhere around 20 or some odd years, we we came to understand that it wasn't, and I'm trying to put this in the most positive frame that I can. Child welfare in this country, the systems are punitive. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes they create more trauma than they help. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it is needing to look at what is it that we truly need to do to transform the system so that, and I'm not against intervention. I'm in the camp of prevention. Right. And so I'm the guy that Yes, I want to stop the violence from happening, but I also know that we teach this violence, a lot of it, as adults. Our children are not born violent. They're not born with these issues. We literally teach them because they watch what we do. And they listen to what we say and how we say it and who we say it to. And so I have learned in my world now that, first of all, I have to listen to young people. I don't care how old they are. I have to listen to them. And I mean, really, you know, someone keeps saying, I want to meet them where they're at. I said, no, I don't want to meet them where they're at. Most people don't like where they're at. You know, it's better than where they were, but they have an aspiration to be somewhere else. And that's where I want to meet them. I don't want to meet them where they dream. So I want to talk to kids about what are you, what's really happening? Right. And, and figure out how can I help them in a way? that leads them to understand that there are people who care about them out here. You know, I, 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 I always tell people I don't mentor anyone. I have, but I have a whole lot of relationships with folks that, that I don't know. I don't think I'd ever give it away uh, to anyone, but working in the child welfare system, I came up in juvenile corrections. As I said, I've been a foster parent. And it's the shifting in those systems to an understanding that, first of all, it's not just about the kids. Everyone talks about serving kids, but kids don't exist outside of the context of families. You can't serve a child without serving the entire family. You just can't. And you can try to do it and you can provide all the services. And usually they might work for a while, but usually they don't work long term. And so the work has to be for an entire family. Additionally, I believe that families exist in the context of community. Mm -hmm. And so there are support systems that get built around people. Lots of people come in with those. The child welfare system has not been really good at recognizing what those positive supports were. We've always focused on the negative. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been in the negative way too long and I realize that there are positive things out there. This idea of adverse childhood experiences. I do like what you did. You framed it as resilience. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be framed. Hallelujah. Dave, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're sending a, a message that can feel very hopeless for people unless we are also, you know, marrying it right up to this idea of resilience and overcoming through the power of community and relationships. 
and assets, right? People need resources. And so, Ginger, I kind of see you hopping around. Is there something that you are wanting to jump in here and add or, or ask? Well, you know me, I'm always going to have the, the questions that poke. Can, can I ask a question that pokes and it's off script? Yeah. Okay. Well, Dave, I don't know. Can she? <laughs> you can ask anything you want. I can't guarantee I can answer it, but you can ask whatever you choose. I, it's your I, show. I will go along with it. I love Thank that. You. Thank you. You had mentioned that, you know, we want to make sure that we're not just serving kids alone, that we also want to serve families too. And I really believe that systems that are currently built that aren't really terribly effective think they're doing that. They think they are serving families. What's the prescription to move them over that hill they think they're already over? Yeah, you did poke one, didn't Sorry, you? Sorry, man. I know you said, because no, I was thinking no, about the I, question and you said, oh, I want to move toward the positive, not just the negative. And I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. But, but I really think uh, we need to lay things bare because people will say, yeah, they're talking about them, not me, when I'm the one who's messing it up. Yeah. You know, I, like I say, I worked in the system. Yeah. <laughs> 20 some odd years. I kept trying to figure the reason I went into corrections is because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to figure out how to stop. And trust me, uh, when I say this, I, I, there's a specific reason. And those that can see me on the screen understand why. But I focused on red, black, brown and poor bodies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I wanted to be sure that whatever we, we do is something that impacts that. But I, I, this idea of state agencies and systems I think we forget the systems are living. They're designed to give us the outcomes that, they're that mm -hmm. they give us. They aren't broken. It's just that we don't like the outcomes. So you can't fix something that's not broken. So no matter how many dollars you throw at it, no matter how many times you use a carrot and stick approach, things don't change because we are the system. We are the ones, us, who are in the seats that are the gatekeepers, we get to make the decisions and we make decisions that A, keep us in power where we are, B, make sure that the money continues to flow, C, all of the things that I've garnered. You know, I've got my golden parachute. I can't afford to move. I can't change this because you're going to shift it over there. I won't have a job. Well, that may be so. But that's part of the reason that we don't get anywhere. I was a gatekeeper. I know this. I was in middle management. It's the easiest place to do it from. I worked for a, for a state agency. Every time the governor changed, my commissioner changed. Mm -hmm. I didn't go anywhere. I was part of a union. I stayed right where I'm at. And I am not anti-union. Do not misunderstand mm -hmm. what I am saying here. What I am saying is that we have to begin to recognize the role that we play in all of this. And we need to hold ourselves accountable. Oftentimes we want to point outward. It's not out there. It's always inside. The real question is, what's my accountability in all of this? If I frame the question differently, if, if I, instead of framing it out there and I say, what's my accountability in all this? And I stay true to that question. Eventually I get to a point where I have to go, oh, I do have a role in this and I need to be working on that. So I am a firm believer that our systems are living and that they have a natural beginning, middle, and end. And that the systems that we currently have, the reason they're, they're not functioning well is that most of them should be put into hospice. On hospice. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Firm believer in hospice. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and you know, the way we create systems, uh, the way the old system, the systems we have were created and the way new ones get created is that we find the little things that are working. We network them, we resource them. Some of them survive along the way. Some of them don't. But eventually you end up with a network. And that network gets resourced better and they begin to work together and they start to figure some stuff out and they become a community of practice. Then we resource them even more. And we start to have the conversations about, okay, these are the things that we know that really work and it gives us the outcomes that we want. Let's forge a new system and it becomes a community of influence, which is the new system. You bring that new system online. When you do the old system you put into hospice, those people who want to continue the work, they move over. People who don't have skills but want to move over, we retrain them and bring them over. Anyone who doesn't want to move, Part of the problem we always have is that people get angry because we're embarrassing them. They've been putting in some really good work. And up till now, that system has worked really well. We can't harm people that way. We have to give people a way of, in the Asian culture, I believe in the old times, it was called saving face. And so how do you let people save face? You give them an opportunity to shepherd the old system into as natural and logical death. And they become the heroes and sheroes of the old system. And you've got a new system, but you, the, the, the folly in all of this is that we get to believe that the new system is so good that it'll never break down. It's living to eventually it will break down. And so we have to pay attention along the way. But that requires us to think differently. Remember I talked about letting go of the old to have the new, mm-hmm. let the new in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it requires us to think differently. Dave, have you um, spent any time with the Aaliyah group? Uh, I have. And do you know Chuck Price? I know the name. I have not met Chuck. So I met Chuck at an ACES conference out in uh, San Francisco, and he was kind of saying some of the same things you are, and he really did reimagine child welfare in Wapaka County. And part of that transition for them to go from a very punitive approach for families to trauma responsive approach, he was he he was told, Chuck, they will come for you. And so when you think about the folks who are really comfortable with the system and the way it operates, they did come for Chuck. And now he's got an amazing consulting service. But one of the things he said that I'm hearing from you as well is, you know, and it's these little paradigm shifts that I think are so important for people. He said, Rebecca, we started training our folks to stop going into homes and looking for bad guys. We started training them to go into homes and look for people to help. And he said, just from that little shift in paradigm, the things that started to happen were just profound and remarkable. And so, Ginger, what was kind of coming up for you as you were listening? I just love the feeling of personal accountability, personal responsibility, personal power of uh, if I'm not happy with where things are, then what's my role in how things are currently playing? And then how do I make the next right decision to move us more toward where we want to be? Uh, and that's really, to me, that, that's it, because each person can. And, I, and I've always thought that, you know, in, in my role of changing schools, that's true everywhere. We all have the power to, to, to choose a different way and, and to find the places and the people who will help us move that way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So Dave, when you think about school systems and child welfare and mandated reporting, right? Because this is a really, I mean, it's, it's an issue that is, I see it as one of the defining 
axles with schools and child welfare and families that we seem to stay really stuck there. And so when you think about building trauma-responsive, resilience-informed approaches, what do you think schools need to understand about this new living system that we're dreaming about and you're trying to put into action in New Jersey? No. Is it New Jersey? It's New Jersey, oh, yes. Thank God I remembered the right place. Oh. It's okay. I have a hard time remembering where I'm at. Where I'm at today. This virtual world. We were just saying their world. Yeah. Uh, so I said, I'm in my office. That's, that's as good as it can get right now. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think about that intersection because I ask about it all the time. I, because I, when I'm doing training with, with educators, they often talk about being mandated reporters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean when you have someone in the education system who is, has a trusted relationship with a young person who says something that the family had no idea, you know, this was not something that anyone wanted out. And I, I will preface that by saying, and I train lots of foster parents and birth parents and the one thing I've noticed, I, I never found a parent who woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to beat Johnny or Susie today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I never, never heard that. I have heard discipline gone sideways. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've, I, the intent to just wake up and do this, I've never heard, which tells me that there is a loving relationship there, regardless of how the rest of us look at it. So. I often have to ask educators, where do you draw the line? Where does the mandated reporting begin and the relationship end? Because you, you're not going to be able to have both once you do the reporting. The relationship's going to fall apart. And if it doesn't fall apart with the kids, it's going to fall apart with the family. And most of the families that I work with have never... Um, had a really good relationship between educators, mm -hmm. especially families of color, black families. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some, but the majority of the folks I see, when they get calls, it's not about their kids doing good. It, it's something that's gone wrong and people are not happy with it. I, I struggle with this one because I don't want children hurt. And I recognize the sanctity of family. You know, there's this thing called, I've seen it called handle with care. Mm -hmm. It is a way that has been described as increasing the positive our engagement between educators and law enforcement. So that when something happens at a home where law enforcement is called and there are school age kids, they re report, it's called a handle with care form, back to the school that they were at this place on thus and such a night and you know that, that this kid whatever the name is you know basically just you know keep an eye out in case something happens well and on the surface when i listened to them i thought that sounded really good and then i had to ask the question has anybody talked to parents about what they think about this because often when we do things we don't go to the people who are directly impacted we act out of a sense of we know how to fix this and therefore we're going to fix it you know, I, I remember having a uh, doing a webinar on ACEs uh, after screening the, the movie Resilience. We had about a thousand people on the line. Uh, our attorney general, when we got got into the kind of the question and answer, he looked at me 
and said, should I just issue a directive that says that we're going to screen all of the kids? And I looked at him and I said, why would you do that? It, it's never been about screening kids. It's never been about screening anyone. It's been about asking people questions, mm -hmm. right? There's this thing that happens when we get into educational systems and law enforcement systems. I mean, almost everybody in New Jersey is a mandated reporter. I mean, you just, I mean, just about everybody. And so it raises an issue of all of these things that you put into place without any input from those who are most directly involved. Um, you know, I talked about that statewide action plan that was to be created at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. One of the conditions of my going there was that the community would drive the statewide action plan. They would give us the language for it. They would help us implement it. We report out to them annually about what's going on. We give them a way to give us input. I mean, they have access there in everything that we do. And I don't mean they're just there as advisory. They actually help us make decisions. The redesign of child welfare in New Jersey right now that's going on is about bringing parents in, ceding power and control, which the state never does, back to the community. It's unheard of. Because for some reason, we believe because we have a bunch of people who put pieces of paper in a box that says that I should know how to do this stuff. And the longer, I, the more times I get elected, the longer I stay in a position, the smarter I am at what I do. I still, my belief is, is that the intelligence is out. Well, you, you can't see me. I'm sorry. We're on radio. Um, <laughs> it's a bad thing. I'm trying to point out my window. The answers are out there. They're out there. The answers are not in the system. And I, I you know. I know I probably haven't addressed the school systems, child welfare mandated reporters question you asked me. It, it's very complicated. All I know is, is that if we want answers, we need to be going out into the community and seeking those answers out there, not believe, not calling people in. Because that's bringing them in our house, the biggest injustice we ever do. I keep telling folks, educators, you, you want parents to come to school conferences. A, we never talk to parents about anything positive. B, we're always bringing them into our power structure. C, we want them to tell us everything going on in their lives when we haven't bothered to share anything. anything. The reason I told you about who I am at the beginning is because I want people to know I'm a human being first. And that family and issues in the community matter to me. And that I'm willing to share my story and I want to hear theirs. Dave, I just... I just have this like hope and my body's like also tight as I'm thinking about, you know, child welfare. And I'm like, okay. And we work with about 450 parents in Kansas in poverty resolution projects. And part of the whole, our ethos is that they lead us. They are the leaders of their own lives. They're uniquely positioned in our communities to help us solve poverty. And they are um, leaders in trauma-informed parenting. As they figured out, they will transfer that to those they love and to our community. And one of the things that we do, because we're also mandated reporters, is when families come, we um, sit down and we say, hey, we're mandated reporters. But our promise to you is that if something happens and someone is, you know, thinking that a child is not safe, we're going to you know, sit down with you and say, hey, here's here's the data. What's going on with this? And we'll get to the bottom of it together. If indeed it is found that a child is not safe, then we will sit with you while you make the call. 
And so when I first started doing this, I called some guy who was in Salina, Kansas, that was over child welfare. And I don't know who I got to, but they got me to a guy and I started asking him like, okay, so here's how we're rolling this out with families. Is this legal? And he just kept spinning and he kept, you know, saying, why would you do that? Why would you do it like that? You know, what is like he couldn't. And I I explained it to him several times. And finally, I just said, is it legal or illegal? And he said, well, it's not illegal, but why would you do that? Right. Like, (laughs) And so, you know, and I've had some teachers that once they've gone through our trauma informed training, like she she called me. She said, I got to make a call. It's not okay." And she said, but I'm calling mom in right after school. And I'm going to tell her I made the call and we're going to help mom find resources. And I was like, now we're moving in the right direction, right? We're not just going to make a call, let a system come in and kind of drop a hammer, perhaps remove a child, not give parents services. I don't know what happens in your state, Dave, but in ours, when families, when families do lose kids, kids go somewhere undisclosed to anyone. They lose their church, they lose their school, they lose their neighborhood, they lose their grandma. And parents in the meantime, when they're in the worst moment of their entire lives are given a laundry list of things to accomplish with typically zero resources, a ton of trauma, right? And so when we're talking about going to the community, like you're saying, the community has our answers. The families who are experiencing this have the insight on how to solve this for us. That gets me excited. I talked too long, didn't I, Ginger? No, you're saying all the good things. I'm glad. No, you didn't talk to him. It's perfect. You know, the, 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 the idea of why would you do that? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? You know? Why wouldn't we? And you notice it took a while for him to answer your question. It did. You know, I I run into the same thing often. It took me a year to get a a new grant process in place, simply because the folks with the state have a way of doing things. And they had already told me I could do what I wanted to do. And so I framed it. And then they came back with all these reasons why I couldn't do it. I said, but you told me I could. Well, you can, but you shouldn't do it that way. No, this is the way I want to do it. Is this a way that I can? Well, yeah, but you shouldn't do it that way. No. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted a 20-page response to this RFP. I told them, I said, nah, I don't want any more than 10. And they said, well, you can't get what you need. I said, I can. And I said, in fact, if it's longer than 10 pages, I'll disqualify them. I, I don't want to, I can't read more than that. Like and we don't take it all it. in. Yeah. So let go. It took a while, but you know, they let go of it and we got through the process. It just took us a year to get the new process in place. To help people get comfortable, right? So what you guys are both describing is somebody had a radically different sort of idea and the system, uh, those in, because we're all part of the system, those in charge of gatekeeping uh, said, no, that's not possible, which is why it's so important that we are doing and having these conversations to connect the the change makers, the people who are bold enough to think differently and to try that, that networking that you had mentioned earlier, Dave, you know, to go to conferences and find the people who are like and unlike us to try to make those connections that we didn't know, uh, we're just waiting to be fired together and, and to continue to be bold together. That's what makes all the difference. There, there's a, something I learned a long time ago. I no longer ask, can I do something? Because the immediate answer from the system is no. That's right. My question is, this is where I want to get. How do I get there? How many times do I tell people that on on a weekly basis? I don't ask somebody if you can do it. Go to them and say, this is what I'm going to do. What problems might I encounter? Thanks. I'm not asking you if I can. I'm not asking for your permission. I'm saying I'm going to do this. Help me think it through. 
I said, tell that to people. Go to leadership and just tell them this is what you're doing. They'll appreciate it. Well, not all will, but some will. Some will. (laughs) The good ones will. (laughs) So, Dave, in kind of wrapping up our time together today, it's 20 years from now, and the work that you have uh, been a part of activating in New Jersey is spreading. Um, We have a new living system. What are some of the outcomes of that system? What are people seeing when they, when they engage with child welfare, when they work for child welfare, when they're a kid who's gone through it, a mom who's, you know, had a kid in there, had a family, like what, what is happening in this new living system? You know, I'm reading a book and I'm your readers, your, your listeners won't know this. I, I read science fiction books, mostly about dragons and things of that nature, because I live in a world that's really real and I need a fantasy world. Right. But the book I'm reading right now is called Upstream. Uh, The the full title is Upstream, the quest to solve problems before they happen. Mm. It's written by a guy named Dan Heath. Um, Right. And I should say I'm reading it. Actually, mm -hmm. my my Alexa is is telling it to me. Right. So I'm, I'm in storyland. But it, it, it talks about the world that I want to live in. And, and it talks about approaching it from a standpoint of going upstream. And not upstream as a destination, but upstream as a destination. So that we're always going mm. upstream. Right? I want to live in a world where we move beyond the intervention stuff. I want to get into the prevention mode and the healing mode. Right. Everything we do is designed to react. We don't do much that's designed to present, at least in this country. Mm-hmm. If you look at other countries around the world, when you see them, it's not about how much money we spend on something like healthcare. It's how we spend it. Mm-hmm. Most other places spend it on the front end. Mm-hmm. You think about the, the, The research tells us that if you want to change the trajectory of children, that kid that's angry, and the way you deal with that is that you change the trajectory of the mother. Of the mama. Yeah. That you change that trajectory, and the further upstream you can go, the more likely you are to change it. The problem is everyone out there, government funders, they all want to know what's the answer, what's the silver bullet, what's the shiny. Mm Mm-hmm. And as Dan, and I'm never going to get this actually totally right with his quote, but what he talks about is that the story of prevention is is that it's written in invisible data with invisible victims and invisible heroes, (laughs) because it's all about the numbers. You can't prove that by not doing something that it caused something to happen. You should just intuitively understand yeah. yet, that it's logical. We see it every day and we won't believe our own eyes. Okay. I, I want that world. I do. Mm. And I believe truly that the ACEs science and the, you know, the, the biology, uh, the epidemiology gave us a blueprint of validation and the science of resilience is full of those invisible heroes and those invisible victims. And it is our language of prevention. And so I just want to thank you so much. I know that you have a lot that you are working to build and create and connect. Dave, if somebody in the Kansas world or beyond would like to get a hold of you to ask more about 
hey, can you inform some of the conversations we're having in our communities or in our systems about change? How would they find you? Well, the easiest way would be you can email me at dave.ellis, D-A-V-E dot E-L-L-I-S at DCF, as in Department of Children and Families, dot NJ dot gov. The other way, you can reach out to me at Dave at DaveEllisConsulting.com. Dave, what a gift you've been for us today. Ginger, any final words for Dave? I I don't. I really appreciate all the gifts that you've given us today. Little nuggets of wisdom I've written. My paper has stuff written down here all over it, things that I want to continue to dig into. And so I appreciate the time uh, and, and, and the wisdom that you're, you're willing to give to all of us. Listeners, we will put some more details about Dave and how to find him in some of our notes for you to access. And listeners, I want you to just spend a moment thinking about this place upstream where we're going back and forth and back and forth and creating a new living system. Dave, any final thoughts from you? You know, I, first of all, Rebecca, just thank you for the invitation. Okay. Ginger, thank you for being here. And who's that guy off to the side That's over there? Glenn. He makes us look really snazzy and sound amazing. <laughs> yeah, I hope he does that. I, I just thank him uh, for being there. This, uh, this is one of many conversations that are happening. You know, there's this thing called Paces Connection out there. If you want to see the national conversation, uh, check there. Uh, it's really just type Paces Connection into your search engine. Yep. It'll come up. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting. My daughter is an educator in Kansas, in, in the uh, Olathe school system. And, you know, I, I just want folks to understand that this is heavy work. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and that all of us have a role to play. And I, I think back with her and I, 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 I don't know, I was going to be a teacher at one point in time. And then I decided that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But all of you educators out there, thank you for doing what you do. Mm. Because without you, none of this works. And again, I will say sawubona. It's a Swahili word. It means I see you. Say that again one more time, Dave. Sawubona. Sawubona. S-A-W-U-B-O-N-A. That's kind of our um, little tagline that we use with our team is I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And so, Dave, blessings to you, my friend. And may we connect as we are supposed to in the future. Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Resilience Conversations. Hopefully we will see you soon. Mm